following program was recorded April 14th, 2010. ReachMD XM160 now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Drs. Matt Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. We're live, we're here, and we have a terrific show for you today. If you want to participate, you can. Call us on the phone, get us on the web, and tweet us on Twitter. As usual, we're covering all kinds of interesting medical topics. Today, we're discussing physician-assisted suicide or physician-aided death. Back in the news with a right-to-die advocacy group called the Final Exit Network. Members say the group is necessary and compassionate, but authorities in several states think otherwise. Today, we're joined by the Final Exit Network's medical director, Dr. Jerry Metz. If you've got a question for Dr. Metz, now is your chance to call in or email. Our number is 888-MD1-REACH, that's 888-631-7322, and our email, sol at reachmd.com. So what else is on our minds today? Well, you've heard of The Hurt Locker, that Oscar-winning film about the day-to-day of bomb disposal team members supporting our war efforts. Mm -hmm. How about the true story of a bomb team scrubbing in for surgery in Afghanistan as a live round is removed from a soldier's head. Sounds like a job for a dermatologist. Wow, soldier's head. They need a dermatologist. And we'll have a look at the current ReachMD poll, all about the push for getting an MBA on top of that MD. That's an MBA on top of that MD. More initials, that's what we need. (laughs) We want to know whether medical doctorates are still enough in today's practices. And we'd be behind the times if we didn't spend a few minutes covering the recent court ruling overturning some patent rights in the field of genetics. As you may know... A judge has recently invalidated a human gene patent, putting 10,000 previous patents into question. Mm. So, whose genes are they anyway? Good question. My genes are Levi's. Excellent point. All this and a few other surprises on this week's Second Opinion Live. Our number again, 888-MD1-REACH. Give us a call. Give us your genes. All right. (laughs) And first up, our regular feature, Curious Headlines. And they are curious today. Today we start with the story of an electronic device that sniffs and tracks chemical compounds in your breath and can detect, of all things, asthma. doesn't just detect bad breath. In the <laughs> April issue of Chest, an Italian team at the Catholic University of the Sacred Heart in Rome used an artificial breath sensor system called an electronic nose. I need one of those to go with my iPhone. I thought you already had they one. Re- they report it was so effective, it actually spotted more cases of asthma than traditional diagnostic tools. Hmm. The stats here were detection rates of nearly 90% with the electronic nose, compared to only about 70% with spermometer. If your nose goes, goes bad, your electronic nose, you give it electronic nose job and fix it or if you don't like the way it looks? You know, that's a good point, and I'm not going to answer that. Okay. But it is interesting, so <laughs> why don't we go over the mechanics? So the device is made up of an array of gas sensors that apparently identify volatile organic compounds in the exhaled breath. Um, the pattern of compounds picked up creates a signature smell print, and I put that in quotations, a smell print for asthma. Now, whether we're talking about this device or traditional PFTs, I mean, both are clearly non-invasive and easy to run. But the authors report that combining this new technology with traditional approaches such as um, the FENO test um, or other uh, like spirometry can identify almost 96% of asthma cases. That's a pretty big claim. Hey, if you can't patent a gene, can you patent your smell print? I would say so. I would like to do that. (laughs) Well, let's not forget, this is still experimental, so don't go following your nose just yet. Oh, follow your nose. Words to live by. But speaking of experimental... How about implants and prosthetics that make phone calls? What do you Hi, think of this that? is your knee calling. <laughs> Business Week is reporting that cell phone operators are coming up with new ways to expand their services and revenues. And one way 
is to partner with companies to inform you or your patient when a change in medical status warrants attention. So these so-called remote monitoring devices or wearable sensors detect changes, evaluate their severity, and then can call, email, or text them to us. It's all part of a developing industry called mobile, or as they say, M-Health. Hi, this is your liver. Stop drinking now. Yeah, <laughs> thanks for the acetaminophen. I appreciate it. Here's an example. Here's an example of making some headlines. This is serious. A Barcelona, or Barcelona hospital is, see how I know my Spanish, is working on a knee brace that is embedded with motion sensors to enable physicians to monitor patient rehabilitation remotely after discharge. Mm. The brace is being tested by 200 patients now, Matt. As they exercise, the patients can see their movements on their home computer screen via 3D avatars. I wonder if their avatars are big and blue. And information is sent wirelessly to doctors, PCs, or cell phones. I don't know. It sounds like a pretty expensive form of follow-up to me, but <laughs> who knows? Maybe it'll take down rehospitalization costs. And I think when you think about it, I mean, how many other devices are coming out, like cardiac monitoring systems that can adjust treatments remotely or embedded GPS locators carried like by the elderly or Alzheimer's patients. I mean, it's, it's, very, it's clearly a, a big up-and-coming industry, wouldn't you say? Well, I think it is, and I think it's a good thing to actually monitor these things. There's, there's a serious side to this, and, mm. and you're going to love these numbers then if you like that. What's Wireless that? health devices are expected to grow in usage from 300,000 in 2009 mm-hmm. to 5.2 million in 2014. Wow. That's a projected capital growth from around 300 million to four and a half billion dollars in less than five years. Big business. Jump on that bandwagon. Well, I guess we already have. I mean, we're in the industry, are we not? My elbow, my <laughs> gotta, el- my elbow has been texting me the whole show here. We've got the best mobile health uh, <laughs> apps in the industry, I would say. And for our final headline, it seems like a scene straight out of the movies, but it really did happen recently at an airbase hospital in Afghanistan. Doctors ran a head CT scan on a wounded soldier with a cartridge fragment from an improvised bomb lodged in his head. Not that unusual case in their experience until the chief radiologist noticed the fragment was a live explosive round primed to go off. I know. When you look at the article, the picture is really scary. I would not have been in that OR. Let me tell you. I would have not have taken the consult. Okay, here's how it was handled. The chief surgeon, Major John Binney, evacuated the OR and called the bomb disposal teams, Mm -hmm. leaving him just him and the anesthesiologist who both suited up in body armor. A member of the bomb team then entered the scene to handle the live round after removal. And, of course, all electronic monitoring devices were turned off for fear of detonating the round, so vital signs were measured with a battery-operated heart monitor and manual blood pressure cuffs. They even simplified the anesthesia by counting the number of drips per minute, but the knee was still calling in. Can you imagine? I know. Having all those, the, the most, it's like setting anesthesia back, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. Forget that. I would be, I'd be drenched in sweat and fear. I would. Wow. Well, thankfully, there is a happy ending here. Uh, the round itself was lodged under a piece of skull bone and got pulled out within 10 minutes, then safely handed off and disposed of by the bomb tech. So that's, and that's best news. of all, there was a happy ending. The patient's been discharged and we're told is recovering quite well. Send him home. That is an amazing story. All right. On to the ReachMD poll, and this week's topic, MDs and the push for MBAs. So the question we're posing to all you out there is whether or not a medical doctorate alone is good enough for today's practices. Have you considered getting an MBA? Do you already have one? I'll bet a number of listeners have been asking this question a lot as of late. And uh, when you consider that small private practice today means getting real cozy with roles like, I don't know, social media expert, personnel director, financier, marketing director, so on and so on and so on. Business school almost sounds redundant when you think about that. But 
to me, it sounds like it'd be better there, you know, in a controlled setting than a sink or swim practice right out of residency. I mean, what do you think? Well, I know. I have a number of colleagues who have MBAs, and very often they leave private practice and become hospital administrators. And they've gotten these MBAs while they were practicing. There's, there's programs you can do it part-time, off-time, mm-hmm. online. Um, and, and a lot of them like it. This is, they want to leave practice, but they want to stay in medicine. And you really can't do administration work very well without that MBA. Mm-hmm. And as medicine becomes more and more... I hate to say a business, Um, maybe some people need that MBA. And maybe it's good to have doctors have MBAs because they're also doctors and they're not just straight bean counters. Yeah, and you don't want to defer uh, administrative decisions to someone else who might be making it for you and not doing it uh, to the satisfaction of you or your patients. So, I mean, let's put it into that perspective. I mean, a lot of people look to getting MBAs as a career alternative, as some way to open doors that's completely different. But what if we put it in the perspective of today's practices, you need uh, to have a lot more business skills than, let's say, I don't know, 50, 100 years ago. Um, what, uh, what do you think an MBA would offer to, to people just in terms of carrying on their own practices? Do you think it would be uh, useful, or do you think real-world real experience is going to be more useful I think anything? some business uh, uh, education will be very useful. I think we ought to do it in medical school all the way through training. So you don't need an MBA, but you do need to know how to be a businessman and be a doctor. Mm-hmm. Okay. And there is a lot of uh, programs now that are introducing five-year programs, MDs and MBAs. Do you think that that's going to be uh, a heightened trend in the future? Do you think it's going to become almost prerequisite to starting your own practice? Wait, let me check the crystal ball. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, you have to look at the sign of the times. I almost wonder if that's going to be a, a prerequisite uh, as far as your resume. People looking to see if they're going to take over a practice. Do you have the requisite administrative skills? I think so. So show us how clinical and business savvy you are. Check out our poll at reachmd.com slash poll and cast your vote. Should Matt get an MBA by Should the next Matt show? Should Matt get an MBA? And he can do it, too. I think so. By the next show. Now we'd like to welcome our guest for this week, Dr. Jerry Metz, medical director of the Final Exit Network, a right-to-die organization whose former medical director has been charged in two alleged suicide incidents. A retired physician living in Maine, Dr. Metz is chairman of faculty training for the organization, which is to say the development of so-called exit guides. Dr. Metz, thank you for joining us today. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Enjoy your show. Uh, that story about the guy with a live round in his head really blew my mind. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you can come here and do the show with us if you can talk he, like he that. Was, he was waiting on that one. That's All great. Right. Well, listen, listen, let's get serious for a minute. What actually is the Final Exit Network? Well, the Final Exit Network grew out of the old Hemlock Society, which was founded way back in 1980 by Derek Humphrey, who wrote the book about the death of his wife from breast cancer called Jean's Way many years ago. And in 2003, the Hemlock Society, for some awful reason, decided to change their name to End of Life Choices, and they lost their name recognition. And then in the following year, they merged with Compassion and Dying to become Compassion and Choices. But at that same point, there were a large number of board members who decided to jump ship and found Final Exit Network because they felt that Compassion and Choices was going to be mainly responsible for trying to get the laws liberalized in different states. And in fact, they did a beautiful job in 2008 of getting the law liberalized in the state of Washington, as many people know. But they were not that interested in being at the bedside, and so our uh, the people from the board who wanted to be hands-on and help people in their last moments uh, decided to form the Final Exit Network, and that's what we do. Uh, some have, have kind of looked at the Final Exit Network and said, well, this is the more radical group. I mean, how do you respond to that? Are, are you guys, uh, do you look upon the, the Hemlock Society um, as being more complacent, or do you 
uh, look upon yourselves with a little bit of acknowledgement that um, you are far more out there on the front lines of what you're trying to do. Well, bear in mind the Hemlock Society doesn't really exist as a nationwide organization. There's still chapters that call themselves the Hemlock Society, but the thrust of bedside care has gone to the final exit network. You know, we, our aim is to serve people who are suffering from an irreversible illness that's become more than they can bear. And this doesn't happen all that often. As you know, the law in uh, Oregon was changed about 10 years ago, and I just looked up the figures. In uh, Washington and Oregon this last year, 95 people took advantage of the change in the law. And uh, the population in Washington is about double that of the population in Oregon. So I'm sure that number is going to grow in Washington state. There were 59 in Oregon and 36 in Washington. So we're really talking about small numbers of people. Well, I don't want to take uh, attention away from you as we're, as we're talking about this issue, but you do have a close colleague, uh, Dr. Larry Egbert, who um, has had charges levied against him uh, as of late. Can you just take us through that? Because that has made some national headlines, and that might give us some scope for our discussion today. Okay. Well, Larry is an emeritus professor of anesthesiology at Johns Hopkins and has lectured on medical ethics at Johns Hopkins. He's a delightful elderly guy, full of uh, vigor. He's been in Physicians of Social Responsibility and a number of uh, human rights organizations. And Larry was the medical director before me and passed judgment on two cases that came before the network. And it was Larry's job to evaluate the medical aspects of the case and recommend whether or not we should provisionally accept these people for our care. Uh, in the case of a gentleman in the state of Georgia, he had a horrible carcinoma of the jaw, massive resection, a great deal of um, restorative work was done and more was planned, and, and he was at a point where he felt he was so disfigured and had been through so much he just couldn't stand going through anymore. So he contacted the network and was approved by, by Larry. Our exit guides went there and helped him to end his life in a method that we use that's quick and easy and, and effective. Unfortunately, his ex-wife went through the apartment, found references to Final Exit Network, called in the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, and they set up a sting organization uh, by having one of their uh, policemen pretend that he had pancreatic cancer. They had another doctor down there sign a statement saying the guy had pancreatic cancer. So, of course, it got by our medical review committee, and we sent a senior exit guide and a regular exit guide to talk with this guy. And they were promptly arrested, along with Dr. Egbert, who had approved the case, and the case coordinator for the southeastern coast. So there were four arrests there. Uh, they they uh, got us under the RICO Act, of all things, which was designed to get rid of Hells Angels and uh, uh, violent extremist groups. And they froze our funds. So here we are in a theoretically free country trying to defend ourselves, and they got our money locked up. Uh, I think the Georgia Bureau of Investigation thought that they could just silence us and we would uh, drift away because we wouldn't be able to defend ourselves. But Derek Humphrey, bless his heart, came to the rescue, started the Liberty Fund. We scrambled uh, to get to raise money. We managed to pay all of our lawyers, and we're doing fine. Thank you very much. And the thing that amuses me about this is that the senior guide who was arrested, Ted Goodwin, uh, is a successful businessman, ardent sailor, uh, handsome big guy, very articulate, and the incoming president 
of the World Federation of Right to Die organizations in Paris. So I kind of think Georgia has dragged their feet in bringing us to trial because they realize they bit off more than they can chew. Handsome big guy sounds like me, right, Matt? <laughs> All right, so no comment on that one. <laughs> tell, us, tell us about your exit guides. How do they work? What do they actually do? Okay. Uh, well, the exit well, guide... Well, take us through the whole process. Let's say that, that I have a terminal illness. What do I, how do I find you? Okay. You call our 1-800 number or you look us up on the internet at finalexitnetwork.org. And you will be put in touch with a case coordinator. The case coordinator will do a brief interview and, you know, establish that you're not a kook and will assign a first responder who will take a history over the phone. And the first responder will tell the person how to get in touch with the Derek Humphreys organization and get the book, Final Exit. We'll tell the person that they need to send in a personal note saying, this is who I am, this is what I've got, and this is why I don't want to be here anymore and some medical records on letterhead paper so that we know that some medical person has seen this person and can attest to what the diagnosis and prognosis is. All of this material gets sent to the Medical Evaluation Committee. We look it over, and if it looks right to us, we will give provisional approval. The case coordinator will then assign an exit guide and a senior exit guide to make a house call. And they will further evaluate the person. They will also further evaluate the situation from a security point of view because we're not about to go barging in where there's TV cameras and doormen. Uh, we will explain to the person what our method is, how to obtain the equipment. We do not supply anything. Then when the person has had time to think about it and their condition perhaps has gotten worse, they call us. We send back the exit guide and the senior guide. We give them moral support, we hold their hand, nobody wants to die alone. And, and we, uh, we watch to see that they don't make a mistake because we don't want the thing to backfire and have somebody end up being, uh, being uh, comatose. So your people are actually there during the process? We are absolutely there because we, we think it's important that, that a person have companionship at the time when their life is ending. Now, when these arrests hit the fan, uh, our board decided for the past year that we would not be safe sending guides and exit guides, uh, exit guides and senior guides anymore. So we stopped that compassionate bedside contact, and several of our people exited anyway, which shows that the method that we've been teaching them is perfectly effective for a person to administer by themselves. We don't have to be there. But we felt so bad about this that the board a few months ago reversed itself, and now we're back at the bedside, and we all feel a lot more comfortable about that. Okay. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Second Opinion Live on ReachMDXM160. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg alongside Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Find us on Twitter at ReachMD or find us by phone, 888-MD1-REACH. We're talking with the medical director and chairman of the of faculty training for the Final Exit Network, Dr. Jerry Metz. Okay. So you talk about these exit guides who go in and evaluate uh, with the patient, what is it that they're trying to rule out? I mean, uh, I've heard uh, mention of um, psychiatric illness being uh, something that, that you need to rule out, and I want to try to find out and tweet out a little bit whether uh, primary versus psych- you know, secondary psychiatric illness or other uh, factors um, come into play when you're, when you're trying to see if this person um, has a what you might call a viable or legitimate claim to a right to die. Well, we're looking first at the medical record to make sure that it is, that it is a diagnosis of some condition that would be capable of killing the person. 
Uh, as far as the psychiatric side of it, our case coordinators are very savvy. The first responders are pretty good. The medical committee gets the information, and we can talk with the patient. If there's any question about psychiatric illness, especially depression, we have people we can call on. The president of our organization, Jerry Denson, for example, is a clinical psychologist in Chicago, but he's not the only consultant we can use. Uh, the thing that helps us most, I think, is that home visit by our senior guide and exit guide and the chance to follow people over a period of time. But we are looking for depression. Uh, on the other hand, if a person has a terminal illness, it's perfectly reasonable for them to be depressed. In fact, if they were not depressed at all, I would think they probably were mentally unbalanced. It's sort of a catch-22 situation. But, but endogenous depression is something that we're not about to... Uh, to participate in, that we certainly you know, don't want to help a person end their life if they've got a psychological problem that's treatable. Uh, and what if it's refractory to treatment uh, for people make that claim? I mean, is this more of a clinical or a legal decision on your side? Well, let's assume that the person is only psychotic or, and has repeatedly been in and out of mental hospitals. We have a, a mechanism for dealing with that. But the bar is set so high, we've never had anybody who passed it. So, I mean, we, we weed them out. And what about uh, these methods that you talk about? How did they get approval? I know that you're probably not allowed illegally to talk about those methods or uh, the rationale for it, but I just want to know how you came to the particular methods that you ultimately approved uh, for this exit. Well, this was done before I arrived on the scene. Uh, Caring Friends, which was the bedside helper arm of the old hemlock society had evolved uh, methods that over a period of time were uh, improved and so by the time I got here uh, the, the group had pretty well decided what was working best although there is an organization worldwide called New Tech that's still working on alternative methods uh, and uh, you know we're, we're looking to see what they come up with. Well, let me ask you a question. Are, are there, what's the religious or spiritual underpinning to this work that you're doing in your organization? There must be something there. It's not just cold, hard, goodbye. Well, certainly we, we're not a religious organization. We don't right. have uh, a religious bent. If anything, so organized religion tends to fight us. So let's say compassionate and spiritual underpinnings. Well, compassionate and spiritual, sure. The people that, I mean, I love the people I work with. This has been a big, fun organization for me because uh, I, I admire and respect, and I really love the compassionate nature of these folks. Um, but, but you couldn't put it under the heading of organized religion. I, spiritual, maybe, but uh, compassionate. Okay, re religious was a bad word there, but... yeah. Well, I think a lot of our listeners, um, you know, who sway the other way, they're thinking, geez, this is a direct violation of the Hippocratic Oath, uh, doing no harm. I mean, I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying, and it sounds like you have a stance that's more towards seeing an unwillingness to hasten death in extreme cases as an act of harm itself. I mean, how do you respond to a, a lot of listeners who are saying this, this is a, a direct violation? All right, let me put it this way, doctor. You are in a situation in New Orleans. The hurricane has hit. The hospital's running 100-degree temperatures indoors. You've got no sanitation. You've got no running water. You've got no electricity. You've got a bunch of dying patients up on the seventh floor. Dr. Who injected at least four of them in front of witnesses, and they died. 
and she was called on the carpet before the uh, you know before the state arrested and all of this kind of business. Some doctors got in boats and left the hospital. They abandoned their patients. This doctor had the compassion and the ability to think outside the box to help people who probably would have died anyway under those circumstances to die quickly and peacefully. Now, who was the better physician? The ones that abandoned the patients or the ones that showed mercy? It's a good question you raise. I think a lot of our listeners are probably speculating on that right now. Although, maybe a counter-argument would be, let's take ourselves out of a natural disaster um, and put it into a context of, of incurable illness, as you've told us before. I mean, uh, does the argument become more difficult to explain on your end, or is it just as clear? Well, I, you know, it's so hard to generalize. There are so many variables. There are so many cases that are so different. I remember a case from when I was a first-year surgical resident where a middle-aged man came into the hospital with a very horrible throat or upper esophageal carcinoma, which eroded into his carotid artery. He was throwing bright red blood and screaming while he gargled in his own heem, screaming in terror. The ENT people were in there. Everybody was in there. They were grabbing tamponades, and they were trying to do everything for the guy except the one thing that he needed, which was a huge bolus of something to put him out of this misery. Or a hand to hold. Or a hand to hold. Or both. Well, or th- both. Well, thank you. Uh, our guest today has been Dr. Jerry Metz, one of the final exit network. Uh, of the final interview. Jerry, thanks for being a guest on Second Opinion, uh, Second Opinion Live here on ReachMD. I think you've affected us both with this. This, this has been a, a phenomenal interview. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Astounding uh, conversation. I mean, this is, it doesn't get any more controversial than this. You know, no matter where you and I sit on this, it's, uh, uh, it's good to get a perspective like that. And uh, there will be more conversations like this in the future, I'm sure, as medicine changes. No question. Okay, now on to the ReachMD Forum, Matt. Hard to believe that the Human Genome Project has celebrated its 10th anniversary. We've celebrated our first year on, on ReachMD. Right. Though many now think the practical benefits in mapping our genetic blueprints are still decades off. But what is clear to this point is that there's no shortage of activity in patenting some human genes. That's right. Nearly a third of all human protein-coding genes have already been patented. That's approximately 10,000 to date. But a recent court ruling has thrown these patents into question. So the case involves a company that holds, along with the University Research Foundation, the patents related to the genes BRCA1 and BRCA2. We've all heard them a million times. Uh, Mutations, of course, have been associated with um, cancer, specifically breast cancer and ovarian cancer. Plaintiffs argued that the genes, uh, which are products of nature, fall outside of the realm of things that can be patented. They claim the patents stifle research and innovation and limit testing options. Right. It's like patenting gravity, according exactly. to these people. But the university and the biotech company holding this patent asked the court to dismiss the case, claiming that the work of isolating the DNA from the body transforms it and makes it patentable. So they're, they're the change that, and the work. But the judge in this case ruled that the patents were improperly granted because they involve a law of nature. Hmm. So is patenting a gene good for medicine? I don't know. The economy and the people, or is it a stifling exclusionary practice? And the broader question, whose DNA is it anyway? I want to patent my genes. Well, I'd like to patent your genes, but my that's genes a whole nice other... patterns. <laughs> nice patterns. Nice patterns. Very good. They have pleats is what they <laughs> have. But uh, it, this, is a, this is a really great question because, uh, you know, you're looking at um, a ruling here that it could have gone one way or the other. I look at this, and from the way it's phrased, it certainly seems like, uh, patenting genes is is strange at best, um, questionable, <laughs> you know, very controversial. But 
the way that they're trying to phrase it on the biotech end is they're like they're saying, well, it's the it's how you isolate it, it's how you discover it, it's the technology that goes into being able to get the gene uh, and be able to recreate it. Let's say with PCR technique. So could Newton have patented the apple tree? Well, they're different. Or things. the nap? They're they're very you know? different things. I mean, I'm putting it as a devil's advocate. Right. Uh, sounds like a legal trick to me, actually. It does sound like a legal trick. It sounds like if if the judge had ruled in favor of saying, well, it's the technology which does that, it's uh, you know, it's it's very easy to just kind of let this one slip through. And I have to say, I mean, if if, if my inclinations are are have anything to do with anything, um, I would think that patenting genes just in and of itself is uh, is reprehensible ethically, morally. But and I think it does stifle research, to be honest with you. Um, but we'll see how that... I agree with you. The other side of that is like, you know, if companies going to make money out of this, they're going to also produce valuable tests and valuable things for us. Yeah. This is one of these, I, I can see both sides of it, and I don't really have an opinion in this case, but because I, I can absolutely agree with both sides of this. Yeah, and you have to, you have to, you have to think that if uh, biotech does steer clear of gene uh, technology and uh, gene therapy because of this ruling, uh, we might have very... Um, powerful ramifications in terms of a complete just downturn of the field. Right. And, and they said that, well, the universities will have to do this. But the universities are struggling I for money these days, too. They're, they're, they're not doing research uh, like they used to. They don't have the funds. The biotech companies have all the big dollars. So once again, it's, it's like you're, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't yeah. in, in this case. And, uh, a rock and a hard place, as they say. Absolutely. So uh, we'll uh, probably get back to this every few years, and we'll be hearing more about it and talking more about the court decision. Yeah, well, I I don't know. I still think it's uh, it's something that, that we're going to have to... It's going to be addressed now. What do you think is going to happen with the next 10,000 uh, genes? If they've already patented about 10,000, a third of our of our uh, protein-codable genome, uh, and now two, you know, two of the most popular, I'll grant you, but two have been um, overruled as saying these are laws of nature. What do you think I, is going to happen I, to I want to patent my own genes, you know, and then nobody can have them. Well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> you can't have my genes. Okay, well, then nothing gets done for anybody, because what are you going to do with them? Uh, this is like a brave new world, man. <laughs> You're not going to do anything with them. Right. That about does it for us here on Second Opinion Live. we got to run because I'm trying to sell Michael's genetic blueprints to the highest bidders. As they say, there's gold in them mountains. They're priceless. Gold. Until right. next time, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. For more about Second Opinion Live on ReachMD, visit our website at reachmd.com sol. Feel free to give us a shout on Twitter, online, and on Facebook. 